we have reached the second half of the 13th century. And the Kabbalah that we have discussed so far, the dominant form of Kabbalah, has been the Kabbalah based on the Sfirot, which is known today as the Theosophical Kabbalah. The Kabbalah which is trying to figure out the shape and the constitution of God and the worlds and how they relate and interact. But at the end of the 13th century, something quite new, something quite novel emerges. And this is a Kabbalistic system with a very different focus. It's known as an ecstatic, a meditative, a prophetic form of Kabbalah. And the main proponent, the father of this system, is a man by the name of Rabbi Avram Abulafia. And today we're going to speak about Avraham Abulafia, this one incredible, enigmatic, complex, and controversial mystic. I want to try and break up today's class into five parts. We're going to present his story, his biography, a sketch which he himself puts forth in his writings, his bibliography, we're going to look at some of his written works and how they interact with one another. We're going to take a look at his opposition, those that were opposed to him and tried to silence him during his life. We're going to try and look at those that he influenced in later Jewish history, in the history of Jewish mysticism. And we're going to finally end with the most important part, which is going to be looking at Abulafia's Kabbalistic and meditative theory and Abulafia's practice. Okay, so let us then begin. Abulafia was born in Saragossa, Spain in the year 1240. The year 1240 may not seem like a very significant year to us, but on the Hebrew calendar, the year 1240 is the year 5000 from the creation of the world. And the year 5000 is an important year for Abulafia because it signifies the beginning of a new millennia, which has all sorts of spiritual potency and all sorts of messianic content and potent held in it. And Abulafia himself mentions that he was born in the year 5000, why this was significant for him. Shortly after he was born, in 1242, his family moved to Toledo, where he was homeschooled by his father. It seems like he was a very knowledgeable man in Torah. His father, by the name of Shmuel, taught him everything that he knew from a young age. In the year 1258, Abulafia, at the young age of 18, loses his father. His father dies. And Abulafia begins, begins a life of ceaseless wandering, of traveling, of being an itinerant mystic and scholar. And his first journey takes him at the age of 20 to the land of Israel on a very bizarre quest. And we begin to see the character of Abulafia emerging here just at the age of 20. Abulafia sets out to try and find a mythological river by the name of the Sambation. The Sambation River is a river which is told in Jewish folklore and Jewish Agada, which is connected to the Ten Lost Tribes, a river that is turbulent the whole week and relaxes on the Shabbat. And part of the belief is that if one can cross this very difficult and treacherous Sambachian River, then one will find the Ten Lost Tribes of Israel. And Abulafia had reason to believe that the Ten Lost Tribes were back in Israel. There was perhaps connected to the Mongolian invasion and that Abulafia felt that they may be one of the Ten Lost Tribes. And he sets out to try and find these Tenlos tribes over the Sambachan River. However, unfortunately, he never ended up finding the Sambachan River. He got about as far as Akko, and he realized that the country was in total desolation. There was absolute chaos and lawlessness. 
following what happened with the First Crusade that had pillaged the land and the war that was being waged between the Mongolian Empire and the Mameluk Sultanate, which was happening in the country at the time. And very quickly he realized that this was not going to be his promised land and his idyllic destination that he was trying to find. And he flees and heads back to Europe, stopping off in Greece where he gets married, heading to Rome, but stopping in a city by the name of Capua, which is in southern Italy. And it's over there in the 1260s that he begins to dedicate himself to the study of philosophy. At the time, there was a school of translators under King Frederick, and it seems very likely that he studied Muslim Arabic philosophy under them. But more importantly, he began to study a text that would remain central his entire life, and this was the Guide to the Perplexed, the Moranavuchim of Maimonides. He begins to study with a philosopher by the name of Hillel, most likely Hillel of Verona, who himself was a very strong supporter of Maimonides and the author of a book by the name of Tagmulei HaNefesh. And over there, Abulafia begins to really soak himself in the thinking of Maimonides, in particularly in the form of his major philosophical text, Morenavuchim, The Guide to the Perplexed, a book which is a seminal work in Jewish history, in the history of Jewish thought. And Abulafia becomes a student of the text and by extension, a student of Maimonides. At the age of 31, in 1269, Abulafia heads off to Barcelona, which is the most important center of Kabbalah of his day. As we discussed in the previous classes, Barcelona is the place where Nachmanides and his students set up their bastion of the study of Kabbalah. And over there, he begins to not only imbibe the wisdom of philosophy as he had been doing earlier, but he now begins to take on the second great stream of Jewish thought, which is Kabbalah. And he begins predominantly there to study the Sefer Yetzirah, the Book of Creation, which I hope to do a separate class just to explain uh, the importance and the content of this book. But in very brief, the Sefer Yetzirah seeks to explain the creation of the world and the creation of the human based on the combination of Hebrew letters. And we're going to see why for Abulafia this becomes a very important idea as we move towards his actual theory of mysticism. This book, Sefer Yetzirah, particularly with its commentaries by the Hasidic Ashkenaz, the group of German pietistic mystics who we ended up mentioning briefly in previous class but not fully exploring, and particularly Eliezer of Worms, the author of the Rokeach, the Bala Rokeach, as well as the interpretations of Nachmanides, become a very central point of teaching for Abulafia, studying Sefer Yetzirah through the commentary of the Hasidic Ashkenaz and Nachmanides, and there is one teacher in particular who is important to mention, his name is Baruch Targami, the author of a text by the name of Mafteach HaKabbalah, the key to Kabbalah, and it's, he seems to have exercised a great influence upon Ablafia in his understanding and reading of this text, which is Sefer Yitzira. What we see here is a, is a phenomenal transition in thought, from really the one most extreme end of Jewish thought to the other, from being a rationalistic Maimonidean, steeped and soaked in the text of Moranabuchim, all the way to becoming a Kabbalist steeped in the text of Sefer Yitzira. And like many other great thinkers in history, the power and the, the grandeur of Abulafia is specifically in this, that he combines within himself two great, seemingly opposing streams of thought, but they come into sort of a seamless interaction in him, which is perhaps why his thought is so intriguing and so dynamic. The this, this synthesis of these two lifebloods of Judaism 
emerging, which will really go on to dominate the next millennia, the rationalistic thought of Maimonides, the mystical thought of Kabbalah, find a, a place, a holistic place in this one person, this one mind, Babalafia mind, which when we get to the second half of the class, we're going to take a dive into. In the year 1270, cont to continue his biography, 1270 or, 12, or 1271, one of the most significant events in Abulafia's life occur, where he has a visionary experience, he has a mystical experience, with very strong messianic undertones, and in this experience, he is directed, he is told that he needs to go and talk to the Pope. And these experiences continue within his life, and they begin to influence him and push him beyond the boundaries of the Kabbalah of his day. The Kabbalah of his day, which is known as a Theosophical Kabbalah, Kabbalah based on Sefirot, begins to be challenged and expanded because of his own mystical experiences. I want to read you a short text in a letter that he writes called V'zot Lihuda, and this to Judah. And we're going to see where, where Abulafia begins in his intellectual and spiritual exploration to move beyond the conventions of his own day's Kabbalistic thinking. He writes like this, And God called my name and said, Avraham, Avraham, a reference to obviously the patriarch Abraham who God called, and a reference to his own name, which was Abraham. And I said, Hineni. And God taught me ways of the law, Orech Mishpat. He woke me up like a man whose teachings have awoken to make Chidushim, to compose novelties, which in my day have yet to be composed. So he recognizes that he's doing something original here. And I went against my will and sent, for, sent forth my hand to what was slightly beyond me. I saw my generation call me a heretic and a non-believer because I was truly serving God unlike the imagination of the people who walk in darkness, because they and their ilk sunk in the abyss, and they were happy to drag me into their darkness and emptiness. But God forbid that I do this, because I will not leave the ways of truth for the ways of falsehood. So we begin to see that Abulafia is emerging with a new consciousness, that he feels called by God to teach something new, something fresh, and that it's something which isn't really going down very smoothly with his compatriots, with his contemporaries. And we're going to explore that aspect of the opposition that he faced and how he responds to that. Abulafia's position of self-describing as a prophet uh, is controversial for a few reasons. One of the reasons is that the Talmud already records that Pascha Nevoa, Nevoa had prophecy had ended, going back to the Sanka Temple period with Zechariah Chagim Lachi being the last of the prophets, which doesn't really allow room for later prophecy in Jewish history. The other aspect is that prophecy traditionally in Jewish history was only allowed to take place in the land of Israel and not outside of Israel. And the fact that he's claiming to be a prophet in Spain is also a contentious statement. And there's a certain threat to the rabbinic system where someone pops up and says, hey, I'm a prophet, because there's a tendency for anarchism and for a capacity of prophecy to sometimes override rabbinic authority. And we're going to see that the leading rabbis of his day are not so happy with this claim of his. But back to his story, for the next two years, he wanders around the cities of Castile, another up-and-coming center of Kabbalah, teaching their Moranavuchim, the Guide to the Perplexed Maimonides, together with his unique Kabbalistic interpretations. And he begins now, in his teaching career, to try and blend these two bodies of thought, Moranavuchim, Maimonides, and Sefitira of Kabbalah. And he tries very hard to pick up students along the way, and he really struggles to find students. He does not have a lot of luck, and he writes with great anguish about how he tries getting students and they're inadequate and they leave him and he leaves them. It's a bit of a sad story if you, if you read his, his accounts. But he does find one very important student who he feels very confident about, 
and he writes that if God is with him, he will succeed greatly. And this is a man by the name of Rabbi Yosef Jigatilia. And Yosef Jigatilia goes on to become a major capitalist of his own right, writing a book by the name of Shari Oira, which is Gates of Light, which becomes a seminal work of Kabbalah for later history. However, in what may have been somewhat of a sore point for Abulafia, Jigatilia, his student, never actually mentions that Abulafia was his teacher. And we're going to see why that makes sense going forward because of how controversial the figure he becomes. But we know almost for certain that uh, Jigatilia studies under Abulafia and takes many of his teachings into his own teachings. In 1273, going back to the storyline, Abulafia leaves Spain, returning back to Greece, where he remains for another six years teaching the Moreno of Uchim, teaching the Guide to the Perfects, teaching his, trying to spread his idea of Kabbalah. And in 1279, he has another vision. And although he had a vision back a few years ago, which we described, he was capable of suppressing the vision and not needing to go and follow it fully. But in 1279, his vision pushes him to begin to actually compose prophetic texts where he begins to write down his prophecies. And some of them have a very strong messianic nature to them. He writes about how he was anointed with oil that ran over him, uh, which is a classic messianic description from the word Moshuach, Mashiach, to be anointed is actually where the term Mashiach comes from. And he returns to Italy, traveling through Trani and Capua, where he continues teaching Rambam Maimonides. And in 1280, we come to a very, very fascinating moment in the life of Rabbi Avram Ablafia, the year 50, where we see, it with very strong messianic expectations, Ablafia perhaps mimicking when Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go from their exile, Ablafia heads to Rome. He wants to meet with Pope, at the time was Pope Nicholas III, in either an attempt to try and convert the Pope to Judaism or to try and get the Pope to allow the Jews to leave Europe and head back to Israel, it's not quite clear, or perhaps even to create some sort of Judeo-Christian synthesis. But anyhow, he heads to the Pope in Rome, and Abulafi himself has quite a, actually an amicable relationship with his co-religionist, with Christian and Muslim mystics of his day. So it doesn't seem perhaps that it was a, a, an antagonistic thing that he was going heading to the Pope. He actually writes about his fellow Christian and Muslim mystics I want to read you this quote because it's quite amazing. He says that there is no question that there, are that there are individuals amongst the nations who know the mysteries. And they discussed the mysteries with me and revealed that this is unquestionably their opinion, whereupon I judge them to be the pious amongst the Gentiles, the chassidei umot ha'olam, as we would say in Hebrew. And one not need worry about the fools of any nation since the Torah was only given to those with intelligence. It's quite an interesting statement that he feels that, that there's some sort of aspect of Torah and wisdom and mystery knowledge of the the secrets that he finds amongst these contemporary Christians and Muslims. And with this sort of attitude of mind, we see Abulafia heading towards Rome, towards the Pope in 1280. Now, just at the time, the Pope had actually left Rome, and he headed to his summer resort in Calabria in southern Italy. And Abulafia, not being deterred by the Pope's absence, goes and heads south to meet the Pope in Suriano. And Abulafia on the way was not very, he was not being quiet about his mission. He was telling people about it and word was spreading about the news. And the Pope heard about Abulafia's approach before Abulafia gets there. And he puts out a message which reaches back to Abulafia that if Abulafia tries to come, there's going to be a nice big pile of wood set up for him where he will be tied and burnt 
on that pile of wood. And Abulafia, hearing this news, continues nonetheless, despite the fact that a big stake to be burnt was being set up for his arrival. Abulafia arrives, and he hears that the night before he gets there, the Pope had died from a stroke. This was on the 22nd of August, 1280, and this is a historical fact. And Abulafia took this historical fact as proof of his own messianic and prophetic potency, and he heads back to Rome. He's actually in prison there for a few weeks, for 28 days is the Islam that he gives. But we can see that heading forth from this moment, Abulafia is filled with a real passion and real fire for his messianic and prophetic mission. He heads in the 1280s, the next decade, to Messina in Sicily, and he is begins to teach his Kabbalistic ideas in a very strong sense. He has students there as well, students in Palermo, and over there his, his teachings are becoming more and more passionate, more and more messianic, more and more fiery. And the Jewish community in Palermo, where some of his students are located, begin to feel uncomfortable with the teachings of Ablafia, and they begin to reject and oppose him and try and kick out his students and those that are teaching his ideas. And in the year 1282, in a momentous moment, the Jewish community of Palermo writes a letter to the Rashba, Rabbi Shlomo Ibn Adar of Barcelona, himself a important Kabbalist and student of Nachmanides, Ramban, who we've spoken about, another very important Kabbalist. And not only is he an important Kabbalist, the Rashba, he's also the leading halachic authority across the Jewish world of his day, who dedicated much of his life to try and calming messianic hysteria that was popping up around the Jewish world, which is always part of Jewish history. And the Rashba hears what's happening with this man, Avram Ablafia, and he decides to launch a full attack, full frontal attack against Ablafia and against his works, banning his works, veritably putting him in, in cheyrim, in, in exorcism, and forbidding anyone from reading or for studying his works. And the, the, the language that he uses against Abulafia is really very, very sharp. Um, I don't even want to repeat the words that he, that he uses to describe him here, but he really comes and he does not, he takes off his gloves and he really gives it to him very strongly. Abulafia, of course, is aware of this and he responds with a letter by the name of Vizotli Yehuda, which was addressed to the friend by the name of Judah, but of course is a reference to the Jewish people as a whole. A very beautiful letter, actually, where he describes his innocence and his sincerity and his authenticity. It's a letter which I recommend reading on your own. It's a long letter, so I'm not going to read it right now. But what happens is, with this, with this opposition that happens, and with the, the weight of the character of the Rashba, it becomes difficult for Abulafia's teachings to penetrate. And slowly, slowly, the teachings of, of Abulafia are pushed out of the Spanish schools of Kabbalah, which are the dominant schools of the day. And it's the reason why so many of Abulafia's teachings remain only in manuscript, until today, and only have been coming to public, into publication very, very recently. Many of them are still only to be found in the Vatican Library, ironically enough, a place where Ablafi himself visited. And only since the 1940s and the 1990s really have his works begin to be republished, because the character of Ablafi has been redeemed historically, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But just to end off his life story, in around the year 1285, Ablafia under distress from his opposition and from his persecution, travels again, writing his one of his final texts, Sefer Ha'ot, the Book of the Sign, the Book of Wonders, about his prophetic experiences, on a little island by the name of Camino, which is just off the Archipelagos near Malta, be somewhere between the years 1285 and 1288. And in 1291, he writes his last work, which is perhaps his most intelligible, which is a meditation manual called Imre Shefer, uh, Words of Beauty, and after that, all trace of him is lost.
I've actually heard it said that um, Abulafia may have never died because he was so meticulous in recording all of the major events of his life, but yet in none of his writings do we find any record of the fact that he died. So, who knows. Let us now talk about the influence of Ablafia upon his later Kabbalists, and then we will move into his bibliography and then into his ideas, which will be the main chunk of today's class. So in the 16th century, a few hundred years following Ablafia, we see his own teachings being quoted by some of the most historically significant Kabbalists of the 16th century, the Ramak Reb Moshe Cordovero, the Encyclopedia of Jewish mysticism includes teachings from Ablafia, Shlomo Alkabat, a major Kabbalist of Tzfat, who you know probably from some of his poetry, quotes Ablafia as well, um, Elio Davidas, the Radbaz, David Ben Zimra, Chaim Vital, a student of the Arizal, quotes Ablafia verbatim at length, although many of these people don't actually give attribution to the name of Ablafia, but uh, in Shari Kedusha, for example, in one of Chaim Vital's works, composing four parts. The fourth part has a very long repetition of the meditative techniques of Abulafia, although the fourth part remains a controversial text and was only printed for the first time just 30 years ago. It remained unprinted for close to 400 years, perhaps because of the controversy of Abulafia, but the fact that Abulafia finds his way into some of these main canonical accepted cabinets of letter day sees that they accepted him without the challenge and contest of the Rashba weighing too heavily upon them. Abulafi's teachings make their way to Israel through a text by the name of Shari Tzedek. Rehuda al-Batoni quotes Abulafia, the author of Sulam Ha'aliyah, and many other teachers in Israel, Joseph Tzachia, many, many great teachers in Jerusalem and all over begin to quote Abulafia. And finally, following the great Kabbalists of Tzfat in Jerusalem, the great 18th century sage, the Chida, Chaim Yosef David Azulai, who has a final word on many disputes in Jewish history, supports and endorses Abulafia, fully aware of the challenge that was put against him. The Chida writes that I know that the Rashba in his responsa and others like Rabbi Yashur of Kandia express contempt towards him. However, I say in truth that I see him as a great rabbi among the master of the secrets. His name and reputation is great in Israel and no one may touch his words. So we see that finally he gets a stamp of approval from the Chida, and going forth, Ablafia's name becomes explicated, and becomes cleaned, and becomes accepted for the rest of Jewish history. And following that, we see a trace of his influence in some very important Hasidic thinkers, particularly his idea of Tveikut, of union with God, which we will explore. And on a side note, Ablafia also has a modern resurgence, being influential in modern philosophy and in writers, such as the French-Jewish postmodern thinker, Jacques Derrida, the father of deconstructionism, is a fan of Abulafia and uses his theories in his own theories. And more popularly, the Italian author Umberto Eco quotes Abulafia. Abulafia becomes actually a, a primary character in his popular novel Foucault's Pendulum. And so we see Abulafia having a resurgence both in Kabbalistic worlds and in modern philosophy and modern literature. Let us talk briefly about Ablafi's bibliography and cover his primary texts, and then we'll get to the most exciting part, which is his ideas. Ablafia was a prolific author who writes close to 50 works between the years 1270 and 1290, writing on commentaries on the Marna Vuchim, Guide to the Perplexed, commentaries on Sefer Yitzirah, the main Kabbalistic work which we studied that we mentioned, and descriptions of his meditative techniques, 
his, he writes poetry, he, write, he writes works on grammar, he really writes very extensively, covering many, many topics and genres in Jewish thought. He writes 26 books of prophecy, actually, in addition to his other writings, according to his own accounts, which of only one of them, Sefer Ot, has survived, which is a fascinating and bizarre book to read. In total, only about 30 of these books survive today, although more and more are being discovered, and more and more books are being, there, there are some forgeries that are being presented as his, and as the scholarship goes on, we're discovering more and more of his works. Abulafia, just to give a, a brief sketch of some of his important works, he writes three commentaries, which is a more than any other person in history, on Guide to the Perplexed, on Mar Nebuchim, Sefer Hagaula, Sefer Chaya Nefesh, and Sefer Sisri Torah. He writes three commentaries on his other favorite work, which is Sefer Yitzira, Oitzer Eden Agadnos, Gal Naul, and a third text, which is untitled. He writes a series of influential handbooks about how to achieve prophetic states and how to, how to reach mystical experiences. Are Seichel, Sefer Lacheshek, Emei Shefer, and the most important and comprehensive of this genre is a text by the name of Chayyeh Elam Haba, which is quoted extensively by later Kabbalists. And he writes a commentary on Chumash, on the five books of Moses, called Sefer Mavtecha Satur, the keys to the Torah. He has a very interesting idea. He elaborates a seven-fold form of interpretation, whereas we spoke about four previously. He has a much more extensive form. And he, as we're going to see, he has an idea of he has a linguistic mysticism where he works with letter permutations, and these are recorded in his books, Gatshemot, Mafteh Harayan, and these books are very, very important for later Kabbalists, particularly for someone like Yosef Chigatilia. And we are going to now turn to the most fun, and I'm glad that everyone has hung through the story of Abulafia, because I believe that the context and the biography of a person is a place where we can understand the context of their thought, and I want to turn to the main book of the class. If you haven't been paying attention till now, now's the time to have a sip of coffee and get in, because now things are about to get wild. All right, let us talk about Abulafia's system, and we're going to talk about six things here. We're going to talk about his prophetic mysticism, we're going to talk about his unitive mysticism, his linguistic mysticism, his messianic mysticism, I'm going to try to explain his theory of mysticism, and then I want to try and introduce some of his method and techniques, and when we have time, I actually want to give you guys an exercise that you can do here and now, to try out some of Ablafia's techniques and see if they have some sort of power, because they do. Now, as we mentioned in the beginning, whereas his contemporary Kabbalists were very, very involved in what's now known as a Theosophical Kabbalah, a Kabbalah which is focused on the different hypostases, the different spherat of God, Ablafia is highly critical of this, to say the least, sometimes almost dismissing it as a form of idolatry where we're multiplying the, the unity of God, and Abulafia, instead of seeing the ten sefirot as ten energies of God, he sees them instead as ten separate intellects in a cosmological chain going from the prime intellect all the way down to our intellect. We spoke about the cosmological great chain of being in class two. Please go back and have a review of that if you're not familiar with what we're talking about. But he sees these ten sefirot as ten intellectual energies, ten intellectual spheres that unite us all the way up to God. And he sees that these intellects are constructed with language, with speech, with letters, and that the whole supernal realm is made up of these words and letters which we will explore. Occasionally, Abulafi describes these Sirot as a internalized psychological state with a symmetry and a isomorphism between the internal structure of the human mind and the external cosmological arrangement of these, of these supernal intellects. Now, according to Abulafia, when we contemplate these 
10 intellects, when we contemplate these versions of this frog that he has, we can actually cause them to have an overflow of intellect. And that overflow comes down to us, comes down into the human in a form of prophetic consciousness. And for that reason, he calls his system Kabbalah Nevuit, a prophetic Kabbalah, because by contemplating his version of the Sefirot, his 10 intellects, one can actually create and experience prophetic experience. And what happens is that when one has this prophetic experience, it's actually a form of uniting with the divine. The divine intellect, Chachma, divine wisdom, and human wisdom can unite in this prophetic experience, and one can achieve what's known now as a state of union mystica, a union with God, Dvekut in Jewish mysticism, a state of mystical ecstasy where the boundaries between the self and God are dissolved. We you know, so often hold on to these boundaries where we define ourselves, where we end and other things begin. But in that state of prophecy, in that state of Dvekut, the idea of the self totally dissolves and one is one with the all, one with God in Ablafi's experience. So for Ablafia, the prophetic experience and the experience of Dvekut, of union with God, of union mystica, are really one and the same experience. And the way which Ablafia does this he cultivates a mystical experience which is aimed to get one to this state of being through meditative techniques, through reflecting on the divine name, through letter permutations in his linguistic mysticism. He has letter switchings called uh, forms of Tmura and Siruf, combining letters. He works with the numerical symbolism, the value, the numerical value of letters, which we know as Gematria. He works even with the acrostics of Hebrew letters, known as Natrikon. And this is all part of his linguistic mysticism, which I'm going to try and explain and make sense of because it's a very bizarre form of mysticism. But let us begin by noting that for Abulafia, the alphabet, the numerals, the vowels, the points, all becomes symbols of existence to him, symbols of being, more fundamental than the physical objects that we see around us. For Abulafia, the, the tissues and the pen and the table and the humans are all really just disguises for the letters that create them. And they all, these letters create a, have an illuminating power for him. And with the rites and practices and meditations, one can reach what in his mind is the highest state of being, which is the state of prophecy, not in order to make miracles and to predict the future, but to come into contact with the highest levels of perception, to be able to intuit and to be able to be connected with the nature of God, with the riddles of creation, with the purpose of life, the purpose of the mitzvah, the deeper meaning of the Torah. These are all the things that are revealed to Abulafia in his prophecy, not simply to be able to, you know, do party tricks and predict what the stock market is going to do. For Abulafia, getting into contact with the reality of God, with the reality of the world, with the reality of the self, is much more significant, and this is what he aims for. Now, Abulafia, as we mentioned, has a strong synthesis between Moronivuchim of Maimonides and the Sefer Yitzirah of Kabbalah. And Abulafia's prophecy is a merger of these two ways of thinking. According to Maimonides' Aristotelian understanding of Kabbalah, very briefly, there is a flux that flows down from the intellect, as we said, from the overflowing of the divine intellect, which manifests in a linguistic message to the prophet, to the human. Abulafia takes this idea and combines it with the idea of letters of Sefi Yitzirah, that through combining and through playing with letters, we can create states of experience through breathing exercises, through contemplating on different parts of the body, through head movements, and body movements and a form of yoga that Ablafi develops and through meditative experience one can come into contact with this with this Maimonidean form of the overflow of the intellect into the human. The Rambam may have been aghast that someone was creating the synthesis between his thought 
and forms of yoga and forms of meditation and forms of breathing exercises and letter of mysticism. But this is exactly what Abulafia does. And it creates a very, very fascinating form of mysticism, which is still practiced, by the way, by select Kabbalists up and very up until this very day. One of the points which Abulafia goes beyond Maimonides is, at least according to most scholars, is that Abulafia sees this act of prophecy as an act of union with God, which Maimonides never quite goes as far to say that prophecy is Dveikot's union with God. I actually, I just want to read you a quote from Abulafia here, where he describes this act of union in his book, Bar HaSeichel. He says, The connection of human existence with the divine existence occurs only during the exercise of thought, of meditation, until he or she, the human, and God becomes one. Until they become one entity. That's what Abulafia writes. And the union between the human and the divine via the intellect is so intense and so thorough and complete that the individual, and Abulafia says these words, he says, he and I, myself and God, and I and he are one. Um, which is a very, very radical statement, a statement which got some other mystics and other traditions killed. And Abulafia says, I is he and he is I, in the state of rapture, in the state of mystical union between the mystic and God. The, these statements of, of Abulafia, by the way, play a very, very interesting role in contemporary study of Kabbalah. And I'm, I'm not sure if I want to get into this, but there was a very large debate between Earliest, all your thinkers in Jewish mysticism, particularly Gershon Shalom, who said that in, Judeus, in Jewish mysticism there was no true uh, union between the human and God, and later mystics, and later sorry, later scholars of mysticism like Moshe Yidel, who says that no, in fact, we do have these very profound moments of union between the human and God. And one of his case examples is these statements by Abulafia, where he describes his union with God in absolute terms. Now, let us talk briefly about Abulafia's messianism, which is fascinating, and then I want to try and explain his linguistic mysticism and then see if we can take an exercise and take and try this for ourselves. You know, they say, do not try this at home. I think that we can try this at home, although <laughs> we're not going to go all the way. Now, Blafi's text himself, he describes that if one goes all the way, one's soul can actually leave one's body. And I don't think anyone will be very happy if anyone's souls leave their body by the end of this class. Abulafia's mystical project suggests a radical reinterpretation of prophecy, as we've seen. He has a radical reinterpretation of what, of what Israel means. He believes that it's a spiritual and psychological state, not just a geographical location. And part of his revolutionary understanding of Judaism is the way that he radically reinterprets the Messianic age. He sees all these three things, prophecy, Israel, and the Mashiach, the Messiah, not as external, geographical, historical phenomena, but as internal experiences, spiritual, psychological processes, which the human being themselves has to undergo and has to transform themselves in. This is actually a major contribution in the history of messianic thought in Judaism. Abulafia, in fact, although this point is contested by some, it seems quite clear from his writings that Abulafia believed that he himself was the Mashiach. However, because he was interpreting the messianic idea very differently, to be the Mashiach, therefore, was also a very different thing than what most of us think when we talk about someone being the Messiah. Because the messianic age was about an age of spiritual transformation, of internal transformation, and not just geopolitical and external, Abulafia believed that the role of the Messiah was to lead people towards an eternal spiritual redemption. And we see this idea becoming very, very popular in later Kabbalistic and Hasidic thinking. And Abulafia may be one of the first people to make this idea popular via his own thinking. For Abulafia, therefore, the Messiah is predominantly the one who reveals the secrets of the Torah. The one who, classically, the Mashiach would bring in the exiles and rebuild the temple. These things all take a backstage to, to Abulafia. And in his mind, the learning of Kabbalah itself, which is the secret of the Torah, that is the predominant role and mission of the Messiah. And he differentiates between 
a simplistic popular understanding of Mashiach with a more sophisticated, in his opinion, the truer conception of Mashiach. And it makes a lot of sense because by revealing these secrets and by transforming people's character and people's minds is really the only way that real messianic change can happen. If we build a temple and we regather the exiles, but everyone comes back with their same old mindset and their same mentality and the same faribles, what good is, a, is, is the base of English? What good is the temple going to be? We're all just going to get into fights and just trash the place. And Abel Alfred believes that before any of that happens, we have to radically change our perception of reality. We have to radically reconceptualize the self in different ways. And Abel Alfred sees that as his mission. And throughout his life, he works to try and develop these very practical, although sometimes quite esoteric forms of meditation, forms of leading people towards that experience, towards that transformation. And he, we see him throughout his life going, traveling, and spreading these ideas. Now let us get to the core of his idea itself, Abulafia's linguistic mysticism, which is part of his messianic program, part of his program of union with God, part of his prophetic experience. These are all tied into one. Are we ready? Okay. Abulafia writes, My whole goal is to untie the knotted seals. What are the knotted seals? Abulafia believes that our mind is in knots. It's sealed. It's closed up. It's not open. It's not open to prophecy. It's not open to God. It's not open to, to love and messianism. And Abulafi has to try and untie these knots. And Abulafi does this with a very bizarre form of linguistic mysticism. And I want to try and explain it in two paradigms. I want to give first a bit more of a psychological explanation and then give an explanation which is more in line with Abulafi's own words, which is more theological and metaphysical. But let's begin with the psychological because that's something which we are more comfortable and familiar and aware with. Our consciousness, our awareness, me and you, all of us, is imprisoned in, within the scope and with the space of our sensory input. Whatever objects fill our perception, whatever we hear, see, smell, those are the things which our thinking and our mind wraps itself around. Which means that we're limited toward, our, our thinking is limited by all the sensory impression, the sensory data that it absorbs. Mysticism in general, across the board, aims to try and expand the scope of our consciousness, to try and, to try and lift the state of our awareness beyond just the given sensory data and material that we find around us, beyond its material prison that it's constricted by. In Jewish mysticism, we would call this mission of trying to take the mind beyond just the sense material, the sense data, from a place of katz a place of contracted consciousness, to a place of gad to a place of expanded consciousness. Now, the even more than just the sensory limits of our perception, our mind is limited more fundamentally by the conceptual limits that, it, that, that we place upon ourselves. Very, very simply, the capacity of our own imagination defines the limits of our consciousness. And the boundaries of our, what we can possibly conceptualize sets the very borders of our being, of our existence. Our borders of reality are up here in the head. And if we can have an expanded mind, then our very existence can be expanded. So we're, con we're confined from the grip of both our sensual perception, what we see around us, and our conceptual hold of what we can possibly, potentially conceptualize. And the role of expanding this, of getting to greater places of creativity, of expansive, beyond our current states of sensory input and beyond our places of conceptual input, to move beyond our day-to-day -day given consciousness, which is just really, a, according to the Kabbalists and many mystics, just a glimmer, a fraction of our potential consciousness, this is the primary challenge for mystics like Abulafia, to, to shed the husk that cases the mind and cases the being, that cases our existence, to try and remove us from simply being involved in sensory material reality 
and to remove us from the, the cages of our own perceptual limits, to move to places of expanded consciousness, as we said. How does one do this? How do we move beyond our states of being? How do we move beyond the regular, the everyday, the ordinary, which we are born into, which is natural for us? Many of us don't even know that there is a possibility to get beyond the cages that we're in. And here, Abulafia makes a highly unique contribution, both in Jewish mysticism and in mysticism across the world. Abulafia very simply reasons, I mean, he's a logical man, he's a philosopher, a student of Maimonides, he reasons that our consciousness, our thinking, our awareness, needs a larger object to wrap itself around, an object which is big enough that in our attempt to get our head around it, we will expand our consciousness in the process, something that won't limit us by its own material and physicality. The object which Abu Lafi chooses is language, letters, words, and particularly the Hebrew language, the Hebrew alphabet. And the technique that he develops with this is what we're going to call linguistic mysticism. Why does he choose language? Very simply, firstly, because language is totally abstract. Language is not captured in any particular location. If you write an A on a paper, that is not the A, that is only a representation of an abstract idea, language, numbers, these are all abstract concepts. So firstly, we're not going to be confined by a material object anymore. Language, as well, is a metaphor and medium of the divine being of God itself. Just like God, language is everywhere and nowhere at the same time. You can't point to language, and yet language is accessible anywhere. Language, like God in some senses, has a capacity for permutations. The same 22 or 24 letters of the alphabet, depending on what system you're using, can be configured and can be combined in infinite capacities, in infinite ways. Language, like God, in some sense, is infinite. So language has a pureness to it, an infinity, a intangibility, which becomes a perfect target for Ablafia to hang his system upon. But more importantly than all of this, for Ablafia and for the Jewish mystics, Language is something very, very different than the way that we, modern 21st century people, conceptualize language. Language, according to the Kabbalists, is not constructed, but is constructive. I'm going to explain what I mean by that. In, in our language, in English or in any contemporary language, language is arbitrary. We call this a table because we all call it a table, and that's why it's called a table. If we all call this a, a quizzle, we would all call it a quizzle, and you would have a quizzle cloth, and you would have a quizzle on a chair, these words are arbitrary. It's simply a matter of consensus. It is constructed. We choose to you call these things what they are. According to the Kabbalists, that is not the case. That is not how language operates. That is not the linguistic theory of Kabbalah. According to, according to the Kabbalists, there is an intrinsic internal affinity between a word and an object. There's an isomorphic relationship between the structure of language and the structure of the universe between the word and the world. This is because Hebrew, according to the Kabbalists, is the language of the mind of God. And with it, with the Hebrew language, with the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, God creates the world. And therefore, the language of Hebrew constitutes the very infrastructure of the universe. So what Abu Lafia is doing when he turns to languages, he is going to the source code. Because these are the letters which are the building blocks of reality. I mean, this is really a mind-blowing concept, that our world is constructed construed, narrativized, and brought into existence by the power of speech, the power of words. When God says, Yehi are, let there be light, from those words, Yehi are, emerge the light that we now know in existence. And if we could somehow peer into the anatomical structure of light itself, we would see the letters Aleph Vav Resh, Ur, according to the Kabbalists. This belief births a perspective that language is inherently constructive, it has a creative power, to establish the world as it is, 
and it holds the power to create new realities and new worlds. At the heart of language, and this is a topic which deserves to be spoken about longer, is at the heart of the Hebrew language, at the heart of all words is one word, the most lofty word, the foundation of all being, from which all creation and from which all language emerge. And this is what's known as the Shem HaMafarsh, God's explicit name, yod and vav Anything that exists, according to Kabbalah, only exists insofar as it has its source in that divine name. And all language and all being is enfolded into those four sacred letters. So this is a point which Ablafia takes at great length, but I'm going to skim over that just now so we can understand more fundamentally why language and how language operates for Ablafia. Ablafia has this sort of alchemy of language where he tries to melt down language to its pure constituents tries to tear it down and deconstruct it into its fundamental components, into its letters, into its uh, nikodot, into its vowels. And one of the ways which Abulafia does this is what's known as tzirufim. We cannot discuss Abulafia without discussing his tzirufim, his way that he combines and letters. He'll take a word, take it apart, and create all sorts of anagrams using those same letters that existed before. And by doing so, the Kabbalist, or the mystic, is expanding their consciousness, seeing all the possible variations that can be made in all of these different permutations. And the letters themselves don't even have to make sense when he does them. They, because each letter has sort of this seed of meaning and it has a stirring of consciousness. And each one conjures a different linguistic connotation, a different idea, and it begins to pull the mind beyond what it's ordinarily capable of. I don't know if anyone here has read Joyce uh, in some of his works, Finian's Wake, where language itself begins to be so malleable and applied, where the mind begins to have trouble to hold on, and in the process, one can feel an expansion of the mind, where we're no longer stuck to the normal ways. And in some ways, Abulaf is a predecessor to the system, where he, where he really messes with our perception, and messes with the way that we use words. In one of his books, for example, in Gan Na'olam, this is a very important comparison he makes, he compares his system of combining and reconfiguring letters to music, which is a very interesting comparison. I mean, we've all listened to music, and we've all had, hopefully, experiences where we've been elevated, elated, expanded, you know, by music, being brought into different states of awareness and consciousness. Music is a very, an extremely subtle experience. Nachmanides writes, actually, about music, that it's the most refined and ethereal sensation, which cannot be captured in any sort of human description, but we all know what it's like. And Abulafi compares his version his version of Tzirofim, of combining letters to music, because when one hears music, says Abulafia, it happens in symphony, it happens with different notes, different instruments, combining in creative ways, the vibrating strings and the percussions all make a very interesting sensation, which Abulafia writes, comes to the ear, and from the ear goes to the heart, and over there emerges happiness and pleasure from the melody. And Abulafia points out that this only happens through Tzirofim, through the combinations of music, through the combinations of different notes, and different tones, and different scales, and different octaves, if there was just a single note playing the whole time, you wouldn't have this. And so to write Ablafia, in our active language, when we roll letters off the pen, says Ablafia, and we create sort of amalgamations, he takes the letters, for example, Aleph, Mem, Shin. And he says, Amash, Asham, Mesh, Shem, Shema. And he just begins to create this sort of music of language that begins to, the mind begins to grapple of where is this going, and where is this leading, and where is this coming from. It's almost like a musical experience for him, which is very fascinating. If anyone here has studied music theory, and, and, and language theory, it's a very, very fascinating comparison and crossover that he makes here. And what Abulafia leads to eventually here, and it's still not so clear how he does this, and we're going to hopefully get more into the how this actually feels, and I want to actually try this with you guys, is essentially an extreme form of meditation, bringing about an expansive consciousness, new states of creativity, new states of prophetic experience, 
Kabbalah Nevoit, and these combinations happen both in the mind, one does these combinations internally, they happen in speech, one speaks out the combinations, and one writes these combinations. And that is, in short, in psychological expression, what Abulafi's system is trying to achieve, and how he uses language to try to achieve that. I know it still may sound very, very unexplained, but we're beginning to lay the seeds here, and I want to now turn to more of a theological and metaphysical explanation for Abulafi's system here, and perhaps we will end with this, and then I will leave you guys with an exercise. Off to the metaphysical, in case the psychological wasn't complicated enough. Abulafia writes, as we said, that the whole goal is to untie the knotted seals. The mind, as we said, according to Abulafia, is cluttered, is knotted up. In Buddhism, we talk about the monkey mind, the incessant chattering of the brain, the free associations. One thing leads to the next, the stream of consciousness, which all really insidiously is working to back up and betray our self-narrative, our story of ego. Why does the mind keep talking, talking, talking? Because if it stops, we may forget that we exist, that we're an ego, and the mind, the ego, keeps, 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 keeps talking, 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 talking. And it's quite a painful experience. Abulafia says we need to empty the mind, we need to quiet the mind. The first stage in any mysticism is to have a quiet mind. But instead of trying to push away these thoughts, to be aggressive and be on the offense about them, Abulafia wants us to observe them and just let them go. And here comes the theological side of how Abulafia tries to achieve this state of clarity of mind. For all religious thinkers of Ablafi's age, the Rishonim, as they're known, not just the Kabbalists, the highest state of God that we can conceptualize is Moichen, is God's intellect, is Chachma. For the Kabbalists, this is the first emanation of the Sfirot that we can tap into. There is high Sfirot that are beyond us. But the first thing is the intellect of God, which we can interact with intellectually. So for all the thinkers of his day, the highest state of God is the intellectual. For Rambam, as we spoke about, Rambam has the highest state of God he describes as the Seichel Poel, the active intellect. Rambam describes God as Huhamada, Huyodea, Vuhayodua, God is the knower, the knowing, and the known. God is really the, the bastion of all potential information, of all thought, of all, God is sort of the collective consciousness, according to Maimonides. And all creation that flows out of God is simply just information, data, ones and zeros, A, C's, G's, and T's of DNA. That is, the whole world is really constructed by information, and this is quite a prevalent thought, even in contemporary science. And in contrast to God's Seichel HaPol, God's active intellect, we humans have what's known as a Seichel HaNikna, an acquired intellect. Prophecy is, according to this thought, therefore, where the individual Seichel connects with the active, the individual intellect connects with the active intellect, with the Seichel HaPol, the collective consciousness. When your individual consciousness can lose its boundaries and borders and connect with the active intellect, the, the collective consciousness, that is the state of prophecy according to Maimonides. And this is what happens when Maimonides meets Sefer Yitzhira, meets Kabbalah. Sefer Yitzhira teaches that the world is built of letters, as we just said. And according to Ablafia, therefore, if we are to connect with the active intellect, it's going to be through, of course, letters, because that is how the active intellect reveals and expresses itself in the world. And Abulafia would say that the Seich the active intellect, is really the combination of all possible letter permutations. It's really the, the meta-matrix of all letters that is this active intellect. And as these letters trickle down into reality, they manifest as the material objects that we know. And in order to channel new Seichel, new thinking, new experience, prophetic experience, it's going to be by tapping into this divine stream of letters which flow from the collective consciousness, from the active intellect. Any 
poets or authors in the crowd, or really anyone that uses language as a medium to communicate, will know, will appreciate this, that we express our thoughts, uh, we create stories, we create ideas in our minds and in the minds of others through language. And God, according to the Kabbalists, expresses God's own mind through language. And therefore, by connecting to language in its, rare, in its most base form, in its rawest form, by melting it down to its base constituents, we're getting back to the Seich Lepal, the active intellect for Abu Lafia. I want to end on a thought here, and then we are going to hopefully try an exercise together. The thought is like this. We all have our own siruf. We all have our own combination. We have our own narrative. The story that we tell ourselves, our name, our family, our community, our country, our hopes, our dreams, our relationships, our dramas, our traumas, all the things we can do, all the things we can't do, who our favorite band is, our email passwords, these are all the tzirofim, the amalgamation that makes you you, that defines you, i.e. the ego. Abulafia says that the same way that the, we build these narratives, we build these contracts with language, we can also create new ones. We can make it zero if we can take parts of ourselves and we can switch them out. We used to think that we couldn't do something. That was a narrative we were telling ourselves. And if that narrative isn't serving us, we have the capacity to take that narrative, to change the letters around and say we can do that. And the same way that we believed that we couldn't do it because we told ourselves, we now will believe that we can because we can tell ourselves we can. And Abu Lafia sees this prophetic experience as an experience which changes the structure of the human. Because once you realize that all reality is language, including the self, the language that we tell ourselves is what constructs the self, then we can use that language to reconstruct the self. This is a very, very powerful idea. It's, I think in modern therapy, we have something called, called narrative therapy, where we take, we examine the stories that we tell ourselves, the, the words that we use to describe ourselves, and we, have, we give ourselves the permission to find new language, new narrative, new stories, to reconceptualize who we are. And I want to try and do that, actually. The... First step for Ablafia is that one needs to purify themselves. And this happens through fasting, through introspection, through silence. According to Ablafia, for men, this is done while wearing tefillin and wearing white, clean clothing. The second step for Ablafia is that we begin to write out the letter permutations, and one can do this in Hebrew or in English. We can take letters and begin to move the letters and see what comes out of them, begin to create different anagrams, and I'll explain if we try and do this together. The third step for Ablafia, which we didn't discuss, is his physiological movements, his yoga, where he has different breathing patterns and different head positions as one moves the body and, and, and speaks out these letter combinations. The fourth step is to bring it into the mind, to begin to imagine letters and to see the letters in one's vision, to project the letters outwards and to rotate them and to see them in their shape. Ablafia writes... Um, that the letters are like a clear mirror and that their brightness will shine back at you. And if you gaze at them, you can ask them questions and the letters will talk back to you and speak to you. And one will see the, the image of a human standing in front of them and strange other things that happens. And this is the first step of an actual visionary, prophetic, mystical experience. And within this stage of beginning to see something, there are four stages again. I'm going to briefly discuss them. First is, and if anyone is doing this, and experiencing this, please let me know. And the first step is what he calls a illuminationism, body photism, we would call it in modern science, where the light that we see from the letters actually begins to infuse and diffuse into the human body, and the human body itself becomes bright and begins to shine forth light. Abulafi's student writes about how his, how his body became light and how he had to go under a blanket to see if the, body, if the light was coming from him, and in fact it was. 
If anyone's having that experience, maybe talk to your rabbi and your local mental health professional and then talk to me about it. The second experience is the body becomes very weak. The third experience is a enhanced capacity for thought and imaginative capacity. The fourth experience is characterized by fear and trembling, right? Abulafia. And this fear and trembling is actually a very important and necessary step towards prophecy. He writes that all your body will begin to tremble, your limbs will begin to shake, you'll have a tremendous fear, like a rider who rides a horse who is happy and joyful while the horse trembles beneath him. So the body, like the horse that is being ridden, begins to shake and tremble, but there should be a sense of happiness and elation in the experience. It's, it's actually incredible that Abulafi describes the psychological process that happens in these experiences. This is very rare in Jewish mysticism. And following this fear, as we said, is the experience of pleasure and delight. He writes that there's a sense of another spirit, another soul coming into you. And only once someone has passed all these experiences do they come to a mystical, a prophetic experience, which Abulafia, in this context that I'm drawing for here, speaks about the vision of a human form, which is similar to one's own body appearing in front of them, some sort of doppelganger, some sort of double of the self, which the mystic, the practitioner, can begin to speak to, and they will begin to repeat back their experiences to themselves. I want to just end off here with a quote from Arya Kaplan, who has written on Rabbi Avram Abulafia. He writes that the true mystical experience, and, and this may actually help us give some context here, the true mystical experience is beyond description and cannot be explained to one who has not experienced it himself. Just as a person who has been blind from birth cannot comprehend the concept of color, so too someone who has been spiritually blind cannot grasp the brilliant spectrum of the spiritual world. Ablafia thus writes, one who reaches the highest level cannot reveal it to anyone. All he can do is to give over the keys, which is what Ablafi himself tries to do, so that the enlightened individual can open the gates which are sealed to exclude the unworthy. The Ablafia gives a very strong warning against spiritual dilettantism, just trying this out just for fun. Um, and I should pass on this warning to you, that if a person enters into these practices just in a whim, without preparation, without purification, which is the very first stage, they can be destroyed spiritually, psychologically, physically, and that is a warning which you should all take very seriously. Ablafia writes himself to the uninitiated. He says, your mind will be confused, your thoughts will be confounded, you will not find any escape from the reveries of your mind, the power of the imagination will overwhelm you, so you might imagine only useless fantasies. Your imagination faculties will grow stronger, weakening your intellect until your reveries cast you into a deep sea. You will not have the wisdom ever to escape from it, and you will therefore drown. So before anyone tries these, that is the warning, that is the caveat from the man himself, which I pass on to you. One really, really needs to clean and silence the mind before one begins to try and expand the mind and to, to, to play with language, to play with these fundamental building blocks of the intellect and of reality. Okay, I want to give an exercise to the group. The exercise is like this. I want everyone to find some time of silence where their mind is clear, they're not worried about what's going on, they're not worried about business, they're not worried about COVID-19, where they're in quiet, dim the lights, just, just light enough so you can see what's on the paper. Take a pencil and take a paper and begin to write up whatever comes to your mind, the first things about yourself. I am X, I am Y, I did Y, I can Y, I, whatever it is, about yourself, but without filtering it that much, just allow yourself to express naturally, and no one's going to read this paper, so be honest, be straightforward, then take five or ten minutes of silence, eyes closed, come back to the paper, and the reason why it's in pencil is because I want you to then look at the paper and then ask yourself, which one of these I statements are serving me, 
and which one of these statements are undermining me. And with an eraser, erase the letters that were not serving you and rearrange, try and take those same letters and try and write a new story for yourself, a positive story. And try sit with that paper and allow yourself to believe the new story that you're telling yourself the same way that you believe the old story and see if you can change any of these self-narratives, any of these beliefs about yourself. And the power to do it is there because these beliefs are constructed by language, we can change them by language. So that is the exercise which I invite you to do. And I am very much looking forward to see who goes ahead and has a shot at doing this. Thank you very much. That is the class. I know that this class was very, very complex and very dense. And we ran through a lot. We tried to tackle one of the most complex thinkers in Jewish mysticism and try to explain the system. And if I failed, then I failed. And I open to questions. People have asked me to repeat the exercise, which I laid out. There's, there's, two, there's really two exercises I was thinking of going with, and I'll, I'll probably put them both out because they could both be helpful. One is to take a piece of paper, to take a, to take a pencil or pen, for the first one at least, you can use to use a pen, and just begin to, your mind will have a lot of thoughts going forth in it, and it will be thoughts about your day, thoughts about what you're doing, thoughts about things that have happened, things that will happen. You're, you need to clear your mind of all of that before you can begin any exercise. And the way to clear your mind, one of Abulafia's ways, is to actually let those things out instead of suppressing them. So take a pen and just just write whatever, literally whatever has come up in your mind, just write. Just let your pen flow and write and write and write and write and write, and write until you get whatever you've written out on the paper. Until you feel like you've exhausted your mind and whatever whatever thoughts have come up and they'll start to slow, the thoughts will start to slow down as they come and as they trickle out, you just let them trickle out straight from your mind to the pen. Don't filter them. Don't, don't check them, don't, don't go back and retype them. Just allow your mind to try and flow as smoothly from your mind to the pen itself. No one's going to read this. It can go into the bin right after. It can be in any language. Don't worry about punctuation. Don't worry about spelling. Just whatever thought comes to your mind, just spit out onto the paper. And once your mind is quiet, then take, take, a, take a paper that you have written with your own self-narrative, which we instructed you to do earlier, which is basically to just write down all of the self-beliefs, all of the I believe about myself, I believe that I'm a man, I believe that I'm a teacher, I believe that I'm this, I believe that I'm a student, I believe that I'm a brother, I believe that I'm a sister, I am good at this, I'm not good at this, I am from here, I do this, I don't do this, I, I have done this in the past, this person likes me, this person doesn't like me, right? All, all these self-defining beliefs that construct the ego, have them down on the paper, and then re once your mind is cleared by the other writing exercise, have a look at the paper, and see, ask yourself which one of those beliefs you want to hold on to and which one of those beliefs you don't feel like you need to hold on to anymore. And because it's in paper, take those letters, erase those letters, and try to reuse those very same letters to rewrite a new story. It's going to be a tricky, it's going to be a tricky exercise, and those that are like good with uh, crosswords and whatnot. Um, so take those letters and rewrite a new story for yourself with those same letters, the same letters that used to imprison you and used to hold you down try and rewrite and reconstruct a new narrative. I hope that made some sense. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a difficult exercise but to, to actually do, but um, in terms of the directions, it's pretty simple. Uh, thank you guys for watching. I hope that made some sense. And if it didn't, please ask me in the comments to explain something. We really threw out a lot there and I will be most, most happy to try and answer and try and make sense. I cannot claim to understand at Abulafi myself, far from it, but Whatever I can understand, I will try and help you understand.
please hit me up in the comments. If you like the video, hit the like button. That helps other people see it. Share it with friends, of course, and keep seeking. Love you.